Welcome to the Future Fair Food Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm Sinead. Join us in conversations with the change makers shaping a new, fairer food system. From the burning to the Amazon to the upcoming global climate strike on the 20th of September, climate change is a hot topic of the moment. We came across an article written by members of Antashka's Climate Change Committee, which really sparked our interest. It lays out the issues with the Irish agricultural agenda and its implications for climate change. So we decided to meet with them and to dive deeper into the topic. Enjoy the episode. I'm John Gibbons. I'm an environmental journalist and I'm also a volunteer PRO on Antashka's Climate Committee. So I'm Paul Price. I work at DCU and I work on climate science and policy. So that's looking across the whole realm and I work, we're working on EPA funded projects right now and I've been with the Climate Committee since the beginning, about five and a half years ago now. Excellent. Uh, so this topic we're going to, it's very broad obviously, but we're going to start with um, climate change, agriculture. So let's start with some facts perhaps about Ireland's role in, um, with agriculture and climate change. Okay, I suppose I'll kick off. I guess first of all, Ireland is a little unusual in that a third of our uh, total emissions, uh, which for a, for a, an EU country is extremely unusual. So we have a very high uh, portion of emissions from the agriculture sector, about a third. Um, and these emissions, instead of going down, are going up. This is really a big problem because any chance we have of making our assorted climate targets as defined by the EPA and otherwise... Um, they're not possible unless the agriculture sector also chips in with emissions reductions. It hasn't happened yet, and I guess part of Antashka's mission within the within the agriculture area is to draw attention to this and to focus on ways that our agriculture sector can, in fact, reduce emissions. And I think what's important, and I know you'll, you'll bear, bear this up, Paul, as well, is we don't mean to increase efficiency. We mean to reduce absolute emissions absolutely. There's a lot of confusion about efficiency. That's what organisations like Chagas and so on keep talking about. What we need to talk about is absolute hard numbers emissions reduction. Yeah, I mean, that's what our targets are about in terms of the EU targets for 2020. So we have legally binded targets to 2020 and then 20, targets to 2030 as well. And that really is about the total emissions of sectors. Mm. I guess the funny thing in Ireland is that in 2011, 2010, we were actually on track we were going to meet the targets, if you like, and on a pro rata basis, you know, it's an aggregate target, including transport and national emissions, uh, the ones that aren't in the traded emissions. Um, but agriculture was on track. Um, but then uh, things took a real turn, I guess, partly in the wake of the economic crisis. Uh, uh, there was a real industry push to, to really change towards dairy to make more profit for who is one thing we can get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a result of that, emissions have been going up very fast since, particularly in dairy, very, very fast. And basically dairy is dragging up the rest of our emissions. And of course, as John was saying, you know, our targets are about getting the absolute emissions down. And that means every sector and uh, transport and agriculture, particularly they're the ones within the national uh, policy that have to go down. They have to go down. And yet we have them going up, and that's seen, seen as somehow acceptable for all sorts of excuses, and that's that's so troubling. <laughs> and, with, and within that, we have, you know, for example, the Minister of Agriculture, instead of actually stepping forward as a public representative to to really work on how we reduce these, instead he's found himself in the position of simply defending one sector's growth targets, 
um, and, and that's why we have the situation where we have um, political lip service being paid to emissions reduction. They talk about it, but all they really want to talk about is modest efficiency improvements. But the thing, as we've said already with efficiency, is you can, you can make processes more efficient, but you max out on that really quickly. And beyond that, then, the only way to reduce emissions is to reduce numbers. Now, it is kind of perverse because there is this thing in Ireland, oh, do you mean you want to reduce the herd? As if this is some, you know, slaughtering the sacred cows. The funny thing is, there was no such national discussion when in 2015 we opened the floodgates and Mm -hmm. added three to 400,000 cows in the space of four years. Mm -hmm. I don't remember people saying, how can you radically change the dairy herd in such a short period of time? Yet when you suggest reversing that, suddenly you're into the realm of heresy. Mm -hmm. It's just, you can't do that. That's unfair, that's unreasonable. And I think if we we, uh, applied the costs to where to where we have the the impacts i think this would level itself out relatively quickly mm. because you know for example our as you know with the our beef herd um, what are we looking at, Paul, in numbers, maybe 6 million head? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. on life support. The average beef farmer in 2018 received 158% of his income in the form of subsidies, mm-hmm. mostly from the EU taxpayer. And by the way, e- the EU taxpayer is you and me. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're propping up a beef sector with almost 6 million animals. That makes no sense. as has huge ecological impacts, um, huge biodiversity impacts. And why? We're subsidising this. And, and this, this, the, the costs we're talking about there, by the way, do not include um, the, the climate costs. And these will start to kick in probably post-2020 when the EU starts to apply compliance charges running into the hundreds of millions of euros for, for our failure to meet our 2020 and soon 2030 targets. And when you add those to the cost already, say, for example, of this, this very large beef herd that makes no economic sense, um, and you then add in the, the, those compliance costs, we're going to face enormous bills. So we're looking at the taxpayer, maybe next year, the year after, chipping in an extra $500 million a year um, to pay our share of what is directly contributed by our beef and dairy herd. Now, personally, as a taxpayer, you know, I just don't see the, I don't see the benefit, I don't see the point in that. It's not improving food security, either nationally or globally, um, and it's emissions-intensive, and from the point of view of pollution, both air pollution, water pollution... Um, it's extremely negative, and as we've intensified our beef and dairy herds, the the impacts of ammonia, uh, nitrogen dioxide, mm-hmm. etc. Nitrous, nitrous oxide. These these impacts are rising fast, and it's having a devastating impact on biodiversity, and water mm-hmm. quality in Ireland. So all of these indicators are in the wrong direction. And meanwhile, the indicator that matters even even more, which is our emissions indicator, is pointing in one direction, and that direction is up. Mm. Just um, in response to, I suppose I can give the response that we always hear, that you're saying all of this, but Irish agriculture, we are the most efficient when it comes to dairy, and I think what was the latest, the fifth most efficient when it comes to beef. And normally when we hear this come up, there's a challenge from someone on the environmental side, and it's to someone on the industry side, and we just kind of hear a little bit of speak from both and that's it. And Paul, you recently wrote an article that really kind of um, challenged a lot of those assumptions. So could you share with us a little bit of, I suppose, the facts and figures of challenging this origin green, this green image we have of Irish agriculture? 
Right. Well, we obviously in AgriLand, that's an article by all the Climate Committee. Um, so we stand, well, you will stand over it together. Uh, so the point, but the point about efficiency is that in a way we don't want to talk about efficiency because, as John was saying, that's not what it's about. It's mm. about the total emissions of the sector. That's actually all that matters for climate change. And uh, most of the emissions are, are nitrous oxide and and uh, methane, uh, the one, the two big ones. And they're really to do with because it's mostly dairy and beef. That's what we have. If you look at the methane efficiency, so that means, the, if you like, the um, methane per unit of milk, per litre of milk, if you like, um, then that really hasn't changed since 2005. There were some emissions, you know, efficiency um, increases, uh, improvements till about 2005, but since then there actually hasn't been, in methane terms, per, per unit of milk, any change. And so when you look in, the, in those terms, we're actually, where is the efficiency? So, and the other thing, I guess, to say about efficiency, recently we have this, you know, Chagas come out with this marginal abatement cost curve and this ab- abatement report. And they're again talking about efficiency as though it automatically results in absolute emissions reductions. Mm-hmm. But, and they actually do say that, that you actually, that's what it's about. Um, although it's a bit hidden, it's not exactly as, as upfront as it should be. Um, but the but the the fact is that all of the all of their um, re, all of that those measures are actually predicated on you know cattle numbers having to go down. They say that, and yet if you look at the projections, cattle numbers are going to go up, cow numbers are going to go up. As I say, the efficiency hasn't changed. And when you look at actually what's happened, because we've already had one of these abatement cost curve reports in 2012, they said all the same things that they are saying now about the tw- in 2018. So in a way, they are repeating exactly the same rhetoric <laughs> and offering no alternative scenarios of really rather different ways forward. Mm. Like we, we could have continued on the path we were on from 2000 to 2011. Emissions are actually going down in the dairy sector because real efficiency did happen then. Mm-hmm. But that's not been recognised. That's not offered as a scenario we could go towards. And instead, we, we are offered... We, in, in a time when it actually emissions have gone up hugely since 2011, um, we are offered this rhetoric again, as though it's suddenly magically going to work this time. Yes. Well, that's what the article was really about, is I was saying, just a second here, it didn't work before, why is it going to work why this time? Can, can I just expand that point a little bit? Um, the data that you referred to, which gives the this kind of clean bill of health, so-called, to our beef and dairy sectors, comes, it's this is called the JRC data, Joint Research Committee. The actual data that it's based on was gathered in 2004, 15 years ago. Now, mm-hmm. when have you ever heard any sector quoting 15-year-old data? Now, if they want data, I've got some up-to-date data for them. In 2017, in April 2017, the European Commission uh, produced a report, and what they looked at was the efficiency per euro of agricultural output across the 28 European countries. So whether it's growing, you know, whatever, green beans in, in France or wine in Italy. So they looked at agricultural output throughout the entire European Union. And what they found is that Ireland, per euro of food production, produces more CO2 than any other European Union country. Per, per euro of food output. So you take so if you have a million euros of output, there's more CO2 produced for that than anywhere else in Europe. Now, you often hear from, from the agricultural lobby, well, you know, we should do it here in Ireland because we're more efficient because if we don't yes. do it here, they'll do it in 
in Brazil. Okay, yeah. well, if we take the European Commission data, which is um, 13 years more up-to-date than the IFA's data, if that's the case, then we shouldn't do agriculture in Ireland at all. If, we're so, if you want to be judged on efficiency, mm-hmm. let's stop doing it here and let's do something else. Maybe we should you know, move into wind energy or something because our so-called efficiency, these are highly, up, up, highly how do you say, subject to challenge. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard, for example, the agricultural minister refer to these figures. I've never heard, by the way, anybody refute them either. Mm-hmm. This is a very important point. Uh, what we have here is an absolute cherry picking of one data set, one interpretation of one data set from 15 years ago. And every time either a minister or a farm lobbyist is on the radio or on the television, they just come out with this one thing over and over again and they're not being challenged on it effectively in the media and they're allowed to put this idea out. So the average Irish person believes because by repetition that we have this unique formula for producing um, efficient beef and dairy and at best our formula is middling. I'm not saying it's terrible but at best it's middling. Can we talk in that case about greenwashing? Mm-hmm. Would that be a case of greenwashing by the government or in my view, uh, absolutely. I think this has been an issue, and I think Paul alluded to it earlier. We talked about Origin Green, even the name. And in the introduction to this document, Origin Green, they actually put it out there and say that Ireland, the colour green is associated with Ireland, and we need to leverage this in a, in a marketing sense. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't use the word cynical, but they might as well have, because that was the subtext, that there is this understanding, whether it's the national jersey or the flag, that Ireland is associated with green. So let's play the green card. And let's name our policy Origin Green. And I think I'm all in favour of Origin Green. But let's imagine for a moment what would be the things you would do if you were a green agricultural producer. The first thing you'd do is, of course, you would have a very large um, organic sector. Because obviously the greenest food, whether no matter what the food is, the greenest way of producing food is organic. We can yeah. agree that. Austria, for example, has about 20% of its agricultural production is organic. Ireland is... 1.6, well, sorry, just yeah. under just under 2%, maybe 1.6, 1.8%. It is, I believe, the second lowest in the European Union is in organic production. Now, that means that 98.4 or 98% of our agricultural production in Ireland is chemically originated. It depends on nitrates, on phosphates, on insecticides, on herbicides. And now, how on earth do you square a 98% chemical production system with slogans like Origin Green. So yeah, I'd call that greenwashing, Paul. I think uh, when you look at Origin Green and you look at what it actually, what's the substance of it, then it's really lacking in good sustainability criteria. They're not, it's not enforced by any international bodies. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of self-approval you know, of what you're doing and you pick and choose what you do. Well, that isn't a kind of criteria across the nation, across a sector, whether it's dairy or whatever, that's actually going to hold water. And so that's hugely problematic. One thing that's constantly boasted about is the carbon navigator. And so this idea that they're kind of recording the kind of carbon emissions and then then coming up with a per unit of milk output or meat output um, measure. But that is an intensity efficiency measure. So if you, and really what it all is, is actually it recommends ways to save costs, which of course farmers want to save costs, fine. But the fact is we have national climate targets mm-hmm. and we have targets that have to be meet, met at an absolute level. And what you can read it in the Irish Farmers Journal, I'm sure you have, is that farmers save costs, uh, save money because they're using the carbon navigator and they boast to other farmers that they're doing that and they've saved costs. What do they do with the money? Mm-hmm. They buy more cattle. 
because that's what makes sense and that's that's a business decision that's not the problem with the farmers it's the way things have been set up and Origin Green is actively um, contributing to that and the Mm -hmm. Carbon Navigator actively contributes to more cattle and more emissions Mm -hmm. well that's not sustainability and it's certainly not in any way green (laughs) and if I can um, offer a complimentary point to this uh, I remember reading uh, a press release from Borbia about how 50,000 farmers had been certified for whatever programme it was, about their greenness and their, um, and their carbon friendliness. And that was grand. So as a journalist, I thought this is really interesting. So I put a, an inquiry in to Borbia and I, into, and I said, look, can you tell me um, what was the fail rate? How many farmers who applied for this certification were rejected on the grounds that they weren't very carbon friendly or they weren't environmentally friendly? And the answer was 0.5%. So 99.5%. Now, I imagine that was probably farmers who forgot to put their name on the form because a failure rate that low can only have been technical. So essentially, you set up a scheme and everybody passes. So we all get a certificate. So so when you've got a... When you're a certifying body, as the Borbia see themselves, and you're handing out certificates to everybody then don't be surprised if people are coming down on you for engaging in in what would appear to be, um, how do we say, we're following a policy here, and the policy is that we want to be seen to be this, and therefore we set up schemes like this with where they're practically impossible to fail. And I think my my point simply is, you know, if if there was a 20% or a 30% failure rate in this, I'd say, okay, Obviously, they go back to people and say, look, we've, we've assessed your situation, but this is all self-assessment. You, you, you fill in a form, you send it in, they say, looks good, tick the box, and then they put out a release saying 50,000 Irish farmers are environmentally friendly. Now, that's if you want to build credibility, and I think it's really important for everybody here, whether you're an environmental NGO, a journalist, uh, or somebody on the ag side, we all need to bring credible arguments to the table. You do not do that by engaging in such blatant... Um, Stratagems as simply certifying everybody. So, yeah, I agree with you because I think um, what has happened with the likes of this is the farmers that are stepping outside of the system, mm-hmm. stepping outside of that industrial system, and really working at the grassroots level to completely radically overhaul their farms and how they farm, uh, remain on the margins and will always remain on the margins when everyone else is orange and green. And that's why you know. You, as you pointed out, we have such a low percentage of organic farmers. How can we possibly call ourselves a green island when we could be, as Doreen mm-hmm. Allen has said for donkeys of years, the organic island? We wouldn't even need the green part of it. And yet there's no push for that. Like we've only had the organic uh, organic farming scheme mm. reopen for the first time in four years. We're not interested. You know? we, and it's, it's obviously clear there. So it's good to see people challenging this green assumption because I think, you know, wasn't it the MPWS that recently said one of the issues that they have is that because people hear the word green and we see the green fields, we think, oh, we must be a green country. But as an ecologist recently pointed out on Twitter, we live in a green desert. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you drive along from Dublin to Cork or Dublin to Waterford, as I did the other day, and you look at the fields to the left and right, and what you're looking at is a ryegrass monoculture mm-hmm. to your left and right supported by um, nitrogen mm-hmm. like 
imported chemical nitrates to make this lovely green grass. But that is that is a monoculture desert. Yeah. There's nothing much living out in that. And yet, to the untrained eye, as you say, mm-hmm. it looks, yeah, we're a very green country. And I think many townies, if I use that phrase as a country boy, <laughs> uh, many townies are really fooled into thinking that the countryside is doing fine. And I think some farmers have fooled themselves into that as well. Not many, not, not many, but some yeah. are going along with it. Um, but you know, farmers who live close to the land, most of them would have a pretty good idea that biodiversity in Ireland is on its knees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we found also talking to to citizens that they were quite shocked um, hearing the facts mm-hmm. and thinking, why? I always thought everything is so green. And even talking to, I'm from Germany originally, even talking to people in Germany about it and what I'm doing and... Um, they are shocked because they have the how we call it, the Kerrygold image. Yeah. So yeah. marketing messages are really strong mm. and they influence people in a very profound yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. And like as we heard now, this is even driven by the governmental organization. So this is really shocking. Mm. And um, it's a systemic mm. issue that we are facing. But I also think it's a reputational issue and you know, we're going to lose our reputation, our green mm-hmm. reputation. And the problem with losing it is it's very difficult to get it back. I would say it's far better to deserve our reputation mm-hmm. than to hide behind it. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing at the moment. We're hiding behind a reputation and cowering behind it rather than saying, right, let's live up to it. And as you correctly pointed out, a country with, you know, among the lowest percentage of organic uh, agriculture in Europe can't possibly be serious about green credentials. Where is the scope? in that system for for nature and if you're you know if we if we simply view agriculture as an extractive industry and that's essentially how it's operating around it's an extractive industry and i think an important side point to this as well is and it's one that used to be out a lot but not so much anymore is this idea that ireland's job apparently is to feed the world we've Mm -hmm. heard this over and over although not so much as said recently and there were some very interesting studies done on this and um, using uh, data from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. And what they found was that Ireland is a net calorie importer, the food calorie importer, to the tune of about the equivalent of the food for about 1.4 million people. So we import in terms of net food calories when you take the entire spectrum more than we export for. So... And I heard on the other day somebody on the radio saying, but Ireland is feeding 45 million people. Mm-hmm. Now, having a beef burger that began life on an Irish farm is not being fed by Irish agriculture. That means you've had a beef burger from Ireland. Mm-hmm. But they've actually turned the number of people who've ever eaten Irish food into we're feeding 45 million people. It's very clever, but it's not true. Mm-hmm. In the same way that if you look at our, say, our, our dairy exports, um, I think it's one point one billion of our um, dairy exports are going in the form of powdered milk and the two the two of the three top markets are china and saudi arabia and what's it doing over there a breast milk replacement mm-hmm. is this really what well, is this is this our version of sustainability feeding like feeding the world is substituting breast milk for, for irish cow's milk mm-hmm. subsidized by the eu taxpayer and shipped halfway around the world is this really what we want our Minister for Agriculture to be standing up and saying, great success, we've managed to shovel another 50,000 tonnes of uh, powdered cow's milk. And by the way, the process, again, the, the energy intensiveness involved 
in drying, powdering, shipping. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. colossal. Yeah. And none of this would be possible. And it's also going to West Africa yeah. to destroy local markets where farmers are being undercut by what amounts to dumped European milk products. And, you know, this is exporting poverty and also exporting some really unfortunate Western um, traits such as abandonment of, of uh, breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing, you know, look, if we are honest and say we don't give a damn, we just don't care, right? Maybe that could be our new slogan, origin, we don't care, right? And start stamping that in our stuff and say, sold to the highest bidder, we do, or the lowest bidder, we don't care, right? If that's what they want, that's fine. But if we want to, to pretend to be a green producer and to be a high-quality producer, which I believe we should be, well, then we need to, our actions need to match our rhetoric, and at the moment, they don't. Yeah, I think this is... I mean, then. The FAO figures, the Food and Agriculture Organisation uh, figures, are a bit behind the times, but the, we're just updating those figures. Uh, um, they're being updated, but it's even worse now uh, because we're importing a lot more um, you know, feed and, and fertiliser. So although we uh, export um, uh, protein, if you like, a lot of that has come... The reason we got that protein is because we're importing unbelievable amounts of um, of a vegetable protein and turning it into animal protein. Mm-hmm. When you look at fats and oils, it's, it's the other way around. We're net importers of fats and oils. We're net importers of food energy, as John was saying. But now it's up to from 1.4 million uh, people equivalent. It's now up to 4.8 million. Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm way behind, so well, so we are wow. you know, actively, if you like, subtracting from global food security. And it's a kind of one-eyed view just to look at exports and not yeah. to look at imports. And if you look at imports minus exports, then we're in a very, very bad place in global food security terms. We're actively subtracting from it. And then there are all these, you know, as John was saying, impacts in, in countries which really shouldn't be being competed with by low, you know, from developed countries. Um, mm. And it's a, it's a really unfortunate thing. And I don't, you know, I think one thing we should stress is, that, you know, this isn't about farmers so much as mm-hmm. about industry. what industry, the agri-food industry, and people w- with big businesses are, are essentially right now farming subsidies, farming subsidies via farmers, yeah. mm-hmm. and making the profits. And by doing that, they get cheap product to their factory gates, and the farmers bear the risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, in a way, this is one of the, the puzzling things for us, I think, is that, you know, we were saying this four or five years ago, mm-hmm. and within Stop Climate Chaos and within the environmental NGOs, we were talking about this. And yet, this has happened, and it's, it, it, it's, we struggle to understand why mm-hmm. this would happen. And looking at the bigger picture, and I think this is maybe what we'll come on to, but looking at the bigger picture... We face a climate and biodiversity emergency. This is there is no doubt, no scientific doubt about this, mm-hmm. um, and this is the situation we are in. And somehow we have to transition our society and our, the way we do things, the way rural life works, the way urban life works. And so somehow, when you have a transition, that takes time, mm-hmm. and it's good to head in the right direction. And for to have actively turned in 2011 in completely the wrong direction to you know raise emissions and do all these things, uh, which and most of all adding to massive amounts of pollution, climate pollution, water pollution, air pollution, especially through the uh, you know massive uh, increase in imports of nitrogen fertilizer. And we've got to remember nitrogen fertilizer, nitrogen reactive nitrogen is a fantastic fertilizer. Yes, 
but it is a massive pollutant. Yes. It's a massive driver of pollutants, mm-hmm. and that's one thing organic farming is trying to get away from, of course. So this is the kind of thing, it's very disappointing to see what has happened, despite what where should have been more science, and people of science really speaking out about this in Ireland and elsewhere. I'm not sure why that didn't happen. But it, you know, it really shouldn't be up to environmental NGOs to fight kind of mm-hmm. battles like this. It's, it just seems one of the constant absurdities I think we face up to is that why are we doing this? <laughs> and when everyone we talk to says, well, you're right, but yes. why aren't yes. they saying it out loud and, and as loud as we are and louder? <laughs> I think that's one of the hardest things because it's naturally as it mentioned about you know, the power of marketing on the, on the consumer citizen front. On the farmer front, when the institutions which you have come to rely on are telling you that everything is okay, there is no need to look at anything else. It is only those who are the change makers on their own farm and within their own communities who are brave enough to step outside that. And that's what it is. But they remain on the margins, you know, and it's that polarization of kind of stick with what we know, business as usual, to those that, you know, are trying to do things different, but they don't get the same kind of coverage, I suppose, or the same kind of, uh, you know, no one comes and kind of says, what are you doing? How can we do this? Instead, it's looked as yes, yeah, yeah. I think one thing, we, I mean, John and I, and all of us, I think, when we look at agriculture, we can see on Twitter and so forth that there are really good farmers out there doing yeah. great things. Lots of biodiversity and fantastic kind of stuff that they're doing. And uh, it's, like, really brilliant. Uh, but as you say, they seem to be kept apart. And, you know, one thing we NGOs, we're, we're volunteers, right? We have mm-hmm. no money. We don't have the money to go out and meet people, and we would love to, in a way. Yeah. But uh, we don't, in a way, that's one of the problems. That it, we, in terms of funding civil society and those people who are, who are actually in the niche, kind of actually producing change, yeah. then that's not happening. I mean, one of the funniest mm-hmm. things, in a way, not that funny, but uh, Dennis Nocton, you know, one day he said something like, you environmental NGOs, you don't get out and about, and our, our response was, okay, give us some money, yeah. and we will, we'll be glad to get out and about, but it, one senses that the very last thing they want is for us to get out and about and to talk to each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, the, you know, the current, um, I suppose the latest round of this is in agroforestry. Mm where a new um, industry-side forestry initiative has popped up and I was looking at pictures of ministers swarming over them. They've got the kind of access to ministers. They're only five minutes in existence and already the ministers are queuing up to say what a brilliant thing this is. Now, (coughs) that stresses the asymmetrical nature of what we're dealing with here. This is pushing a version of agroforestry where biodiversity, where the voice from, from, from the, you know, the National Parks and Wildlife Services and from the Biodiversity Data Centre, they're all pushed to one side. And what we get instead is the rush towards an industrial forestry system. And this is the voice that we hear. We see it pushed out. I saw a big piece in the Irish Times saying about how you know people who object to this don't understand. Mm-hmm. And apparently the, the monocultures that are objected to, apparently they're actually thriving biodiversity hotspots. Yet all we hear to support this is statements. We hear no evidence, we can see no evidence to back it up, and anyone, myself included, who has walked through uh, an industrial forest, a Quilcha-style forest, which most of theirs are industrial forest, what you, what you understand very quickly is you're in a dead zone. Mm-hmm. More, this is basically the type of monoculture, the ryegrass monoculture, mm-hmm. well this now is the sylvan monoculture. Mm-hmm. And this again is the capture as you've described it, as I would understand it, where 
you know, forestry has wonderful potential for, for regeneration, for carbon capture, uh, for and basically to, to, to regenerate and sustain biodiversity. But what happens? It gets quickly captured by industrial players with lots of money to spend. Mm-hmm. And they rush into the space, they hire their PR people, they flood it out into the media, and next thing, there's nothing wrong with Sitka spruce monoculture. Why are you objecting to it? Aren't forests great? And they want yeah, quick-growing, uh, rapid turnover. And where's, you know, where's the benefit? Where's the gain in this? For, and from a biodiversity point of view, there is no gain. Mm-hmm. And also, from, from farmers' point of view, they don't want to be surrounded by Sitka spruce because it's a dreadful, dreadful thing. Whereas any of us who've ever walked through a natural forest will understand that it has tourist amenity, it has uh, all kinds of positive benefits for a local community, you know, well-maintained or even left alone natural woodlands. But what we have instead is, unfortunately, these, these, these really dark and lifeless uh, spaces. And it's taking that agriculture, industrialised agriculture model, and that's not been driven by farmers. Mm-hmm. That has been driven undoubtedly by the agri-industrial um, players, the big guys who are pushing this. In the same way as to, to, to circle back around to beef, like I said, the beef farmer, the average Irish beef farmer is taking a hammering. Yet Larry Goodman, the, the main player in, 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 in the beef sector in Ireland, uh, is valued at €4 billion. Euros. So yes, there's money in beef, but it is not in the growing of beef. The money has gone up the line mm-hmm. and the primary producer as we see in Ireland, as we've seen in many parts of the world, the primary producer gets gets the raw deal, gets the short end of the stick. I think that's what we're seeing, as John says, this kind of industrialisation of land use and and for the benefit of quite few, really. Um, well, the, the larger landowners and, and large businesses, corporations, and we're seeing this, in, as John was saying, in forestry and agriculture, but we're also seeing it now in bioenergy, this idea that we're going to, going to grow lots of bioenergy and of grass, well, that means some of the modelling and some of the academic work is predicated on having food-wise increased cattle numbers and having bio in gas industry on top of that, mm-hmm. which means even more nitrogen fertiliser. Yeah. I mean, this is there's a kind of insanity about that when we are actively told by Chagask and so forth that nitrogen, nitrogen must go down. Mm-hmm. And yet we have Chagask advisors advising nitrogen per hectare to go up. Mm-hmm. We get that... We can show you the presentations with Chagasco doing this actively right now. Yeah. Um, and this is absurd. And they're also, you know, helping from transition from beef to dairy. Well, that means massive more nitrogen use, more nitrogen emissions, more ammonia emissions, and more nitrates to water. Um, this is this is failure, <laughs> and, and so that's really extraordinary. Yeah. And, and that's the way it's it, like. I, I'm in the west of Ireland, and I see this playing out on the ground. And, you know, on my road, um, which would have been traditional beef suckler, kind of, you know, where we are in the west of Ireland, because it's all kind of quite hilly in that. Mm-hmm. But we would probably have the last patch of traditional meadow on that, on this four kilometre road. Everything else has either left the sector and it's a Sitka forest that's gone up. Or the other, they've transitioned to dairy. And with that transition to dairy is the fact that these meadow grasses are no longer efficient and not good enough for the yeah. for the modern dairy cow. So it's sprayed off, it's ploughed up, it's Italian ryegrass that goes in, the hedgerows are cut back down, everything is neat, straight, <coughs> thin, tidy. Yes. Standard black yes. and white cow comes in, and now these guys are efficient and they're you know making money. Yeah. The other option 
is is Sitka, a dead zone, mm-hmm. an absolute dead zone. And like so, I remember years ago having a conversation with someone in Chagas. We were in Galway, and we said like the policy looks like in very simple terms: dairy to the east, Sitka to the west. And the answer was yes. <laughs> you know, so that's. Yeah. We see it played out of the ground, and yet, yeah. so we have the data to show that this is not working. Farmers know it's not working. The average citizen, even though they are being blindsided by mm. the marketing of the spin, mm. we've got it. Like, you can hear it. You can hear how quiet it is when you walk the roads in New York. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I drive the roads, and there's no bugs on the screen. But, yeah. yeah, but I mean, but nobody in Chagas is getting promoted on the basis of, of um, enhancing biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge problem. We want our state agencies, whether it's Chagas or Quilcha or Bordemona or ESB. We control these organisations. Mm-hmm. We want them to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. If these were all privatised, you'd say, well, what do you expect? But these are actually organisations that we own, fund and control. So from my point of view, what, what really is lacking here is to say, well, what's, you know, why is an organisation like Chagas you know, so one-eyed about this? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we looked at, and this isn't a bash Chagas session, by the way, but just to make the point, it really isn't, because we want these organisations to do better. But the Chagas has, um, um, what's that council? It's a... The authority. The authority, yeah. Sorry, Chagas authority. It's an 11-person authority. Five of those 11 people, including the chairman, are all, not just farmers, but dairy farmers. Now, if your authority, five of the 11, including the chairman, are dairy farmers, strangely enough, you might begin to find that this trickles down to the regular guys on the beat who kind of get the memo that Mm -hmm. really the direction that this organisation needs to go in is, you know, that we want to go where we're being pushed or where we're being nudged. And we need to do better. There is no voices Mm -hmm. on that authority representing the, the, the environmental concerns, representing biodiversity, representing... Grain growers. Or grain growers, indeed, yeah. There's organic nothing, or nothing from organics, nothing from any system mm-hmm. other than dairy farming. Now, and of course, these people didn't magic in there. They're appointed by the Minister for Agriculture. So what you have here is basically the opposite of a virtuous circle, mm-hmm. where we're getting the policy that we wish for by installing the people who are going to deliver the policy. And that authority undoubtedly, no matter what you say, if the you know how if if you had if of those eleven people, if I imagine if two or three of them were coming from the organic sector, I imagine then suddenly Chagas would be looking much more closely at that and would be putting out reports and would be pointing out or from the biodiversity sector. So we're it's it's what you get in is what you get out. Mm-hmm. And I think we looking from the outside we have to look closely and to challenge in a constructive way we're not here to tear down Chagast or Quilcha or Bordenamona but by golly we're going to challenge their models when those models seem to be crazy and I know we're not talking about about uh, peat today but if we were I'd say all the same things the peat well they call it peat harvesting but given that it takes 10,000 years to grow a bog I call it peat mining mm. it's exactly the same stuff uh, shoveling in taxpayers' money in the form of public service obligation, propping up unsustainable uh, incomes and doing large-scale ecological wreckage with nobody in there accountable for it and nobody in there interested in it. Mm-hmm. And instead we just get more of the same horticultural interests, we get um, energy interests, but nobody saying, oh my God, these are, our, these are the closest thing we have in biodiversity terms to rainforests 
And what are we doing? We're taking taxpayers' money to subsidise, destroying them. So this isn't a specific problem to, to um, Chagast. It is, this is a problem right across our state and semi-state sectors. And where does that come from? It comes from bad politics mm-hmm. over many years. And this is not party political, but bad politics that has favoured quick buck mm-hmm. over a long-term view. And unfortunately, we're seeing it again and again and again. And we're seeing it right now with this drive to uh, by these industrial interests to grab the push for forestry and to turn it into to industrial um, timber mining. Mm-hmm. I think this is the difficult... One of the big... Um, pieces of rhetoric of course is we're increasing the cattle emissions which is the you know fertilizer and the methane and in a way the fertilizer of course is for growing more grass and you feed more grass to cattle and you'll get more emissions you get more methane and so the two go together in a way the nitrogen fertilizer is the driver of the methane emissions and so you you've got to look at these things in a system way and on, that's on the one side and then on the other side you have this real push oh we must offset those emissions with carbon sequestration and so you get this other rhetoric developing very rapidly and you can it's coming big time mm-hmm. um, and it, big players like Aravia, the which is Gas Networks Ireland are, are in play trying to develop green gas from grass with more fertiliser and also at the same time you have forestry people trying to claim that they are going to store a lot of carbon in plantation forestry but from a climate point of view this is not how things work right so one thing that's been said is that you're you're going to get carbon dioxide from the atmosphere well that doesn't offset methane methane has very different behavior in the atmosphere in terms of radiative forcing and the way it works in in in, um, atmospheric physics to carbon dioxide carbon dioxide is the primary thing we're controlled concerned about but what we're really concerned about is fossil carbon what you might call black carbon which is in very secure reservoirs we're just choosing to dig it out and burn it, mm-hmm. right? But in no way is that equivalent to land carbon, green carbon, if you like, uh, which is not secure in any way. Mm-hmm. And if you're going, if all you're going to do is grow trees and grow them fast, thin them and chop them down, a that's not going to store very much carbon anyway. It's much more. You're going to store a lot more carbon per hectare if you just let them, don't don't harvest it at all. Then you're storing mm-hmm. carbon. But if you repeatedly just cut it down. You can't have your carbon cake and eat it. You just can't. It doesn't work that way. And and also, it's vulnerable to re-release. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, trees do store some carbon, but really they store it if you don't harvest it. Exactly. And if you don't harvest it, then you can have lots of biodiversity too. And that's a great thing. And if we were actively supporting that, that mm-hmm. would be a good thing. But we don't. What we support is fast growth get the carbon in there but then chop it down but we'll ignore the fact we're chopping it down we'll just you know enjoy the fact that it's oh there's carbon coming out of the atmosphere but we ignore the chopping down bit Mm. well that's not how things work and really in in climate change the really primary focus has to be about cutting fossil fuel use really really fast if we do that our economy changes we probably Mm -hmm. don't have enough money across the way probably not to eat beef (laughs) when it comes down to it so if we're serious about fossil fuel reduction we actually have to be serious about how we're going to farm just on that score let alone on a land use score and if we're going to think about um, how things work in terms of you know really how climate gases work and in how what carbon sequestration really means that means storing carbon for thousands of years then land use isn't really going to do that 
it's all about cutting fossil fuel use, in which case everything changes, and that, that itself changes farming. And we have to think in these system ways, and all this diversionary rhetoric, it's not helping us, it's not helping farmers, it's not helping any of the public good on this. I, you're so right, because I always think every time I hear a new solution to climate change is that the easiest way for me to, to look at it is kind of go, is this reinforcing the current system as it is, or is this a radical overall? Mm-hmm. And most of the solutions we come up with just reinforce this, you know, the concentration of power, the further technological fixes, which again removes any autonomy from farmers and kind of looking at their system, their farm, and making them take more of an ecological approach to where they are and how best they can farm. It yes. keeps removing that, diluting it. It's, it's reinforcing, no, you must take this technological approach. It's climate smart you must follow this budget, you know, and... Mm. Yeah, it's very short-term. It's short-termist, yeah. I think as well there's a saying that, you know, you need a doctor maybe once in a while, you need a plumber, Mm -hmm. you need a butcher, but you need a farmer three times a day. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, what's been totally forgotten about, in my opinion, in in the rush to so-called productivity and efficiency is that food is far too cheap, far too cheap. The percentage of any of our incomes that we spend on food, I don't mean eating in fancy restaurants, but buying food for eating, has tumbled over the last 30 or 40 years, and mostly at the cost of the primary producers. Mm-hmm. Well, um, a farmer at a conference that I was speaking at the other day, he said um, that he was getting the same for his milk in 1988 in cash terms that he's getting at the moment. 1988, yeah. oh. 30, nearly 35 years yeah. ago. So... Therefore, he was able to get by in the 80s on a smaller output. Now he's been squeezed down and down. So what's he have to do? Produce more and more, right? Being, again, squeezed down. Mm -hmm. We need to understand that the most important activity since the end of the last ice age involving humans has been agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yet, in just the last century or so, it has been downgraded to some kind of a low-level activity that's cheap. And, 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 and if you're not cheap enough, well, we'll find somebody in Peru or somebody in, in Uganda who's even cheaper than you. Mm-hmm. And we'll bring in stuff from here and we'll bring in stuff from there. And we've created this globalized, just-in-time, chasing around the world for cheap. I mean, I took an apple out of a, a bag the other day and the apple was from Chile. I opened another bag and the apple was from New Zealand. This is in August in Ireland. We imported last year in Ireland 60,000 tonnes of apples, for God's sakes. We also imported, by the way, 70,000 tonnes of potatoes. And believe it or not, 40,000 of those tonnes came from Britain. Now, talk about coals to Newcastle. <laughs> Ireland importing potatoes mm. from Britain. There's 60 million people on the island of Britain, and they're able to produce enough potatoes to export to here. So we, our relationship with food, it's too cheap. We have, we're not thinking about it. And here in Ireland, we, we have moved away from the idea of what, what does it mean to be food secure? Mm-hmm. And I think whatever is coming down the line with climate change and, and, and related disruption... If I were in charge of these things, what the strategic plan that I would want to put in place is a plan for national food security. Mm-hmm. That means, okay, let's just imagine, let's game a scenario that says that international freight is badly hit and we're not able to import all these inputs. Can we feed our population? 
These are basic things, and it's happened before in emergencies. And I think you've pointed out, Paul, during the Second World War, the last time that tillage spiked in Ireland was during what we call the emergency, was the Second World War, Mm -hmm. because the luxury of cattle farming, we had to eat. So we switched to tillage. Because an acre of land, you can knock 15 tonnes of potatoes out of one acre of land without too much effort. Mm-hmm. Now, the efficiency, the amount of, of nutrition you can get from you know, horticulture and market gardening, that's what you do in a pinch when you need to feed. It isn't beef and dairy. That's a form of extensification of agriculture, which, even though it sounds extensive, sounds good, yet the impacts are intensive. We, kind of, we get the worst impacts of both extensive using up all the land and intensive still... Uh, having huge impact. So, as I say, if I were in charge of these things, uh, I would have a national focus in Ireland. I'd have a department, not of agriculture, but of food security. Mm -hmm. And I'd be looking at what is the most efficient way for us to achieve national food security. Now, that might sound like a very insular uh, approach, and I'm not suggesting that we don't trade internationally. Of course we do. But I don't personally think we should be sending a billion euros worth of powdered milk to um, China and Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. I don't think that represents sustainable trade. And I think if you remove the subsidies from that, that trade would collapse overnight. Mm -hmm. And I think European taxpayers haven't a clue how their foods, how their agricultural subsidies are being used. The point, the EU has poured money into agriculture, into the cap, more than any other part of it. And the reason was supposed to be for food security in Europe after the Second World War, when the lesson was that Europe tasted hunger. And the lesson of the EC, apart from peace, was food security. So they brought in the cheap food policy, supporting farmers, etc., etc. But the thing, basically, in my opinion, has run rogue. Mm-hmm. And now we need to rein it back in, and we need to tie our... We, of course we need to support farmers well, and fishermen, but we need to support them as custodians and guardians, mm-hmm. not as predators and, and hunters. Mm-hmm. And, and our current agriculture system is, is almost approaching a mining model more than a, a stewardship model. I think uh, looking at the climate projections for Europe, European farmers are in trouble. Uh, looking down at food supplies uh, mm-hmm. in Europe are going to be in trouble. Southern Europe particularly is going to be challenged by drought in a big way. And it seems to me to look outward is a good thing and Ireland could be a, a big supplier of real food. Mm-hmm. And f- food actually does mean, in terms of nitrogen efficiency, we keep t- hearing about you know, in, in, you know people from Chagask and so forth, we'll be talking about nitrogen efficiency. Well, there's nothing particularly nitrogen efficient about dairy or beef. There really isn't. They're very highly inefficient. In fact, what John was saying there, you know, if you talk about fruits, vegetables, potatoes, they are hugely nitrogen efficient. They are really the way to feed people. Hmm. And the same with grains and cereals. You know, these are things that, you know, there is plenty of good land in Ireland to grow these things. And one of the things, you know, one of the most bizarre to me pieces of rhetoric we get is that oh if you plough up grasslands then you'll release lots of carbon well if you would put ruminants on them you're going to get a lot of methane especially if you power it with like lots of nitrogen fertilizer so that's not so great and also you can you don't have to just turn everything into grain growing land 
land, can you? You can actually have, you can have natural woodland, that's the place for that. On your best land, you concentrate effort and you produce food. That's mm. what mixed farming was always mm. about always, yeah. before we had chemical madness. And specialisation. And specialisation. And chemical madness really arrived when money was there to do mm-hmm. things. You know, when the EU and the Euro, you know, EEC arrived, then there was money for fertiliser. Well, now that is being exploited, especially because the milk cap disappeared mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. then because there was no cap on production now it's free reign but the trouble is farmers are now also on the hook as you saw in 2018 yeah. 2018 was an absolute disaster mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. there was a drought so the nitrogen fertilizer was put on anyway but did nothing so we got we you know we went up to 408,000 tons of nitrogen from 296,000 tons wow. in 2011 38% rise in nitrogen fertilizer imports Plus, because of that didn't because that didn't grow the grass, then they had to import way more feed mm-hmm. to get the nitrogen into the cattle to do things. Well, this is craziness, and farmers are on the hook. Presumably, I don't know for sure, but I presumably they're on the hook with contracts to deliver milk and so forth to factories. And if it doesn't go, so they had to take the big they had to take the big hit. In the past, you know, mm-hmm. things went down. There was less milk prices went up. Farmers, some you know, farmers who had been more efficient perhaps would make more money. Because they were able to, but in this situation, they took the hit. The factories got the milk. Da-da. That seems to be a crazy system. Yes. As Paul said, you know, Europe is facing you know really serious um, climate fueled um, pressures on food food systems, particularly mm-hmm. the Mediterranean region is going to you know in, become more and more water. It's already water stressed, but that can head head to a point where many forms of current forms of agriculture will just cease to exist. That's going to put pressure on other areas to be able to feed. And I think I'll use one example, uh, which I think is pretty extraordinary, and that is Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a country, a small country, about the size of Munster, with a population of about 17 million people. So they have 1,300 people per square kilometre. It's a very densely populated country, very little spare land. But despite that, Holland is the world's second biggest food producer, after the US, believe it or not. The US is 170 times bigger than Holland. And Holland has done it largely through um, what's called, and this is not a cliche, but sustainable intensification of its agricultural system. And the first thing it's done is large chunks of it, 36 square miles, have been put under glass. Now, that's a wonderful idea. When When you've got to deal with intermittent drought followed by torrential rain, if you're essentially creating a largely artificial environment where when it rains, you capture the rain and you store it, so rather than having your crops destroyed by it. And when it's a drought, well then you've got stored rainwater to get you through the drought. And you use hydroponic systems for, for um, vegetable production and so on. And they've, for example, reduced their freshwater consumption by up to 90% using this. And probably one of Holland's biggest exports, apart from food, is agricultural expertise. 140 countries in the world have Dutch agricultural experts advising them on it. Now, it's not a perfect system. They've had problems with intensive pig farming and so on, mm-hmm. and, and, and cattle, the, and cattle, and cattle. But, they've, yeah. but they've had limits. But what did they do? They reduced their herd size mm-hmm. when, you know, when they, they were starting yeah. to get uh, eutrophication, I think, into the North Sea, but they responded. But the point, leaving that aside, no system is perfect. But what Holland shows is if you use high technology and expertise and modern systems... And some of these systems, by the way, are not that sophisticated. Greenhouses are not that sophisticated, right? The idea of actually buffering, 
your, your food production from just the weather, where we're just getting everything flattened or dried out. And it is possible in a very limited space like you, like you have in Holland to produce extraordinary quantities of food for direct human consumption, not to feed to cattle. Because mm. as soon as you do that, the loss, if you take all that food, whether it's carrots or potatoes or whatever you have in yourself, and start shoveling it into animals, and say, let's say they're beef animals, you're looking at a probably 96 to 99% energy loss rather than you or I eating that food directly. So rooting our food production through animals back to us, apart from all the emissions along the way, is just losing between 96 and 99% of the primary calorific energy is lost. And in a climate-challenged world of 7.7 billion people and rising, we cannot afford to be so profligate with our food energy. We've got to count our food calories and come up with a system where we become efficient at producing food for human consumption and we dramatically reduce the amount of um, livestock in the world. I think, was it 50 billion farmed animals in the world at the moment? 50 billion So 7 billion humans, 50 billion farmed animals. Now, of course, that's a, a rolling stock because it's constantly being raised and slaughtered, raised and slaughtered. But I believe the figure is 50 billion. We can't sustain the, the, the energy loss, the calorific loss, and the emissions arising from it. It's just not sustainable. And we already know that the impacts globally of the amount of the world, of the arable land, of the usable land in the world that has been sequestered for agriculture depending on who you ask, it's somewhere between 40% and 70% of the surface area of the world has been given over to agriculture. Now, how, if we continue with our current models and if we accept the inevitability that India and China wants more and more meat and so on, well then that 70% is going to be tending towards 100%. So essentially turning the world into a farm. If that's, that's the plan. And there are people who say, yeah, I'm happy with that. We're happy to do that, but that's fine. Then we simply tip global biodiversity into collapse And when global biodiversity finally collapses, it will bring down with it the global food system and everyone who depends on it, which includes everyone listening to this and everyone in this room. So we're so cavalier with biodiversity. We think biodiversity is something that's only of interest to ecologists and people who care about stuff like that. You know, but the creepy crawlies and all the rest, yet biodiversity is the glue that holds the world together. And at the moment, its biggest enemy is agriculture the land, the sequestration of nature and its conversion into agricultural production. And this isn't anti-farmer. This is just a system that we have set up globally that is destroying the natural world. And the problem with destroying the natural world is you do that, then you destroy our food systems, and by doing that, we destroy ourselves. So these are discussions that we really need to have, and we need to move them on away from just simply, you know, farmers v. NGOs. There's, there's much more at stake. Yeah, I wouldn't like to, to end the podcast on that, but it needs to be said, definitely. Yeah. I think we all need to understand this, that it's it's all of us, <laughs> all our lives that are at stake. And in your example with uh, with um, Holland, is what what I hear from it, there's a real willingness as well to change, mm. because the solutions are out there. We know there are solutions out there, and you mentioned already a few, but we really need the willingness from government as well to to be prepared to change yes. and not to believe to simply dig in on our current system and double down at the moment it's dig in and double down mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think one thing you know what you were saying earlier how, how do we make solutions work mm. and so forth and I think one thing that we on the climate change committee constantly stress <laughs> is this is about limits we yes. are bumping up in the century 
really at our ultimate limits of what our civilization can impact on the world. And so how things add up, if your set of solutions, and you, can, you know, this is the trouble with looking at the individual solutions. Mm. You cannot look at individual solutions. It's about system change. And mm-hmm. therefore, you've got to have whatever set of solutions you, you have must add up. And that's, you can have various scenarios of sets of solutions, but they have to add up to a, a way forward for the globe, for the EU or for Ireland to actually meet you know, the climate obligations we have. And we've, we've actually signed up at Paris. Mm. That's really the overarching um, um, thing the globe agreed on. The globe agreed to limit um, climate change to two degrees above, well below two degrees above pre-industrial. Well, when you run that through a climate change model, these, you, the, there are the, very, the scenarios are narrowing. And really, we need to get on board with everything right now, and that means agriculture too. Mm. And that means when you look at the models, it's very, very difficult to have so many cattle. And you should be, you don't have to get rid of the cattle. That's something that gets thrown at people like NGOs all the time. Oh, you're just talking about it. No, that's not true. But you need a steady reduction in order to have a steady reduction in methane. Because actually a steady reduction in methane actually is a cooling effect. Mm -hmm. And that's hugely important and could be hugely valuable. Um, and so these, this, and so the same with land use. Where we're actually, if we were actually valuing reservoirs of carbon, actually valuing, you know, not digging up peat, not reducing the harvest rates, because that's the problem right now. Is not limited. Is not the the afforestation rates are too low. As much as anything, it's because the, the harvest rates are too high relative to past planting. Mm-hmm. So you've got to. All of this must add up. And some of the things we could do are very simple. One of the things you is only run scenarios where nitrogen fertilizer imports are back at the 2011 level and then going down slowly from there. We shouldn't have accepted in any way the pollution that's bound to be the result. It was inevitably the result of increasing nitrogen imports. Mm-hmm. That was abs- that should have been utterly unacceptable to Chagas, to the scientific experts, to all the agricultural science people around Ireland. Where were they? Mm-hmm. That's puzzling to me. Why weren't they speaking up? Um, because it was inevitably the case. And, you, you know, if you put a cap on nitrogen fertiliser, certainly if you're going to get rid of a cap on the milk quota, if you get rid of the milk quota, you then lost any caps. And the cap is suddenly, oh, we, you know, we, we, the beef, uh, the world's going to need more beef. Well, does it need more beef? We should mm-hmm. be saying, does it need mm-hmm. more beef? Should we really morally be supplying the world with more beef? Well, the climate models would tell you just on the science. No, we should not. Yeah. And that's a crazy way to go. So there are things we can do. Limit nitrogen fertilizer. Value values carbon storage and pay for that. Don't value sequestration flow rates that we're going to prioritize plantation forestry. Mm-hmm. And if you do these things, then different farming emerges. In France, they have way more organic. Why? Because they had to, and, and other places, batten down on nitrogen fertilizer because the pollution was too great. Mm-hmm. In New Zealand, they have this problem right now. They went full scale into dairy. Ireland follows New Zealand in many things. Oh, look at the science over there. We'll follow them. But the problems are immense, in, yeah. and they are they are reaping the the, the dreadful reward of what they have done. Mm-hmm. And we are going on exactly the same line, and it doesn't seem like we're learning any lessons. And that's what's so disappointing about the and why why we wrote this article mm-hmm. is because oh my goodness, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. But they, by putting limits, then we can if we had a, that limit, then we could work out different scenarios of farming within that limit. 
and then farming would look very different and suddenly you would have more organic because you wouldn't be able to have so much fertilizer and you would you would then be rationing the fertilizer out in a clever ways to make more to grow more food and to do things more for farming generally and for farmers generally well that would be sensible but only by setting overall limits are you going to get that kind of scenario thinking otherwise you get oh there's no there's no alternative except this way well, mm-hmm. we can't be doing that and i think we should be smarter I agree. I think, as Nashi said, we know the solutions are there. You know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. The solutions are there. And often we think of these solutions as challenges, but actually they can be great opportunities because farming in its current form in Ireland is not working for the environment. It's not working for farmers. Mm, And we know it's not feeding ourselves. So we are at this point in our kind of road that we can kind of say, right, we need Mm. to turn left and we need to go this way. Or we just keep going head down keep listening to the mantra, everything is good here, you know, keep the blinkers on, and you're right, that does seem to be where we're going, on the ground there, you know, as I said there are people coming forward from from ecologists to more people in environment, to farmers to people eating differently, and Mm. you know making informed choices about their food, it's happening but we need to scale that, and the only way we're going to get that, I think, is like this, you know, where you've like you guys with you with the climate commission you're putting the solutions out there it's just getting the right years to it, actually you know in a way I would just a, just a sec I mean we are not actually putting out that many solutions we yeah. are just saying these are the limits yeah. knock yourself out whatever work as a culture as a society yes. work yeah. within them yeah no, and I think you know in a way by accepting limits by self-limiting and being smart about that, that's the way we actually have to look for going forward. Mm-hmm. We have to self-limit going forward. We cannot use so much of fossil fuels. In a way, the only way to address the CO2 side of things is really mostly about fossil fuels. That's not agriculture. But what does that mean? That actually means restricting the number of uh, oil tankers that come into the port and saying we will model a, on that basis. We will model on the basis there will be fewer oil tankers every year going forward. But that's not the kind of modelling, and it's the same, unfortunately, in agriculture. They're not modelling on the basis of, let's go back to 2011, nitrogen imports and go down slowly from there. They're not doing that at all. And that's really, that's the kind of thing. And I think, you know, we as NGOs, we are not experts in all solutions, and we are not really offering solutions. We are just saying, here are the limits. Show us how your set of solutions add up. And, you know, what's disappointing is we we see the agencies like SEAI and Chagask and, you know, not really modelling in that way at all. Mm. They're not modelling to accept that. They're modelling to go with whatever the economic preferences of now are, well, that's not any way we can go forward. I think, finally, the framework within which this agri-expansion model has worked has been two, two policies. One was um, Food Harvest 2020, and the other, its successor, was Foodwise 2025. Both these documents were... They weren't ghost-written by the industry. They were written-written by the industry and rubber-stamped mm-hmm. by government. So here you have a situation where the industry is basically writing its own policy not the farmers, the industry, writing its own policy and getting a rubber stamp by government. Now, obviously, they, the industry has no interest in overall limits and in, in carbon mitigation or any, any of this because that's not their concern. So this is the model that we followed for the last, whatever, since 2011, mm-hmm. essentially, has been an industry-written model. And this is why it's so completely out of whack with our intergovernmental and our international obligations. We have essentially, we've got two lines of thought going on here. We have government saying we must, we must. But in fact, 
what the, the, the script that they're working to is an industry written script and, and, and the funny thing is people like Tara McCarthy of Borbia she'll go on the radio and tell you that's an industry adopted policy and that's what they're working with what we need is a policy driven by politicians not by industry mm-hmm. and also a policy that gives us some, ro- some roadmap towards a, a genuinely sustainable future for our farmers for our population and as part of a wider European and world community That's it for now, folks. Thanks a million for listening. To those of you who produce food, why not join the Fair Food Movement? Get involved, get in touch, join us. And if you're into Fair Food, then become a supporting member or check out our Patreon page to help us create more content like this. Until next time, eat well, choose fair.